This is the Sports and Entertainment Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration only on MarketScale. Building your brand is not around your product, so your team and your players, but you build your brand around truly this experience in this community. And we aren't in the baseball business. We are in the entertainment business, the experience business, and most importantly, the people business. Welcome to this week's episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the program. Today's show is going to focus on the sport of baseball. And uh, I'm a huge baseball fan. I've, I grew up that way. Uh, but there's some thought that baseball is waning in its popularity in the United States. A study published by Gallup found that only 9% of Americans list baseball as their favorite sport to watch. And that's actually the lowest total since Gallup first started conducting this study back in 1937. So there's some data to suggest that baseball, and its popularity anyways, is kind of waning when it comes to viewership. Um, so we're asking the question, how can baseball rethink what it does? How can baseball reposition itself in the American landscape to remain popular for years and years and years to come? I think that's a worthwhile question to ask. So on the show today, we're going to dive in and look at three specific areas that can drive baseball's popularity back up to the top in the United States. In our first feature, we're going to talk to Jesse Cole, and he is the founder of Fans First Entertainment and the owner of the Savannah Bananas. And the Savannah Bananas are a baseball team that play in the Coastal Plain League that began play in 2016. But they're actually on a 60-game sell streak playing in a stadium that was built in the 1920s that doesn't have a video board or anything along those lines but yet they're still selling out their games and they're still massively popular in their local community and so we're going to talk about hey why are you able to be so successful with drawing people into your stadium and what can teams across the country learn from this and how can baseball better position itself moving forward to attract more fans so that's going to be a question we're going to tackle with Jesse Cole in the first segment our second segment today is going to be a conversation with Alec Weber from Blinkfire Analytics. Now, we've had Alec on in the past before, but he really lives in this world of the intersection of social media and sports. And so we're going to talk about what the NBA is doing so well these days, how they're increasing their revenue based off of advertising on jerseys, and whether or not baseball should get into the same game as well. So we're going to talk about that in our second segment with Alec Weber. And then finally, our correspondent Sean Heath here at MarketScale is going to dive into stadium upgrades and stadium modernization across Major League Baseball, who is doing what in terms of improving their stadium? Are people adding new video boards, video screens? Uh, some stadiums are going cashierless when it comes to payment. Uh, so how are stadiums really seeking to upgrade as they move into this next 2019 baseball season? What are stadiums doing? What are teams doing to uh, really draw in those fans? So that's what we're looking at on today's episode. I hope you enjoy it. I'm really excited to get a chance to bring it to you. Without further ado, let's dive into that conversation with Jesse Cole, the owner of the Savannah Bananas and founder of Fans First Entertainment. Coming up next here on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. All right, joining me now on the podcast is Jesse Cole. He is the founder of Fans First Entertainment and the owner of the Savannah Bananas. Jesse, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today, sir. Yeah, excited to be with you today. I am excited to get to chat with you and Basically, for those of you who don't know about the Savannah Bananas, they're a baseball team in the Coastal Plain League that began play in 2016, and they've sold out every game from the 2017 and 2018 seasons. They're currently on a 60-game sellout streak, and if you want an inside look at how they're able to do that, uh, Jesse Cole and the team there in Savannah, uh, you should check out Market Scale's video series, Welcome to the Show, that kind of takes you behind the scenes with the bananas. But right now, we're talking about an article from the Wall Street Journal that reports that overall participation in the game of baseball across the country is up. Um, now, that might not necessarily be the case, Jesse. I kind of wanted to open it up to you and just kind of talk about uh, the overall state of the game as you see it right now. Yeah, it was a shocking article, and uh, I was very pleasantly surprised to see it. You know, anytime uh, you can see a sport, especially like baseball, which is, you know, we've gone on over 100 years now, and everyone's been talking about the sport dying, to see that uh, the statistics are showing some growth is outstanding. Now, I, I had to dive into the article because I was, I was very intrigued because, you know, I've been reading articles about Little League participation declining almost 20%, and then I saw this, and it, it shared that, you know, I think it was what casual play has increased over 21%, I think, in the last four years. And uh, I was fascinated. So I started looking at it and diving into the story and, you know, it shared that 
from what they found was between you know uh, people that play once to 12 times a year uh, you know that participation has increased dramatically but you know I, I didn't really there wasn't a sample size uh, you know share there wasn't much out, out other than that it's a very uh, you know, sexy stat to see, but um, I'm still questioning kind of what that actually looks like um, as far as casual play versus, you know, playing in an actual league. Someone playing in the backyard or picking up a ball and playing catches, I think different than someone being in a league and really committing to playing on a regular basis. Right. And I think that the question that remains for people that uh, are in the world of baseball and love the game of baseball and want to see it continue to flourish in this country is okay it's great that kids are getting a you know a, a ball and a glove in their hands at, at any point during the year i don't think that anybody's going to disagree that anytime a kid picks up a glove and a ball it's a good thing in this country but uh how do you then uh take kids that are more actively participating even if it is once eight times a year however many times it is how many how do you turn those kids into fans and how are we doing uh in that regard are we doing a good job in this country of taking kids that are interested in the game and helping them be lifelong baseball fans. You need to make the game fun. You know, there's a difference between someone going out and, and playing once and then saying, this isn't for me. And to make the game fun, it starts at the top. You know, before in the, in the 80s and 90s when baseball was flourishing, you had all these stars that you could watch, the Ken Griffey Juniors and the Roger Clemenses, and, you know, baseball was everything. And it was fun. It was fun to watch these guys. And I think now, um, you know, we're seeing with football and basketball really embracing the players, embracing the fun, the celebration, whereas baseball, it's kind of still going back to the traditionalists. And so I think the key is these kids that are playing, they need to see, you know, heroes. They need to see players that they want to be like. You know, recently ESPN did a study and they asked, you know, who are uh, kids who are their favorite athletes? And there were no baseball players in the top 30. Right, I saw that. And, it, and, and it's staggering because, you know, if you go back in the 80s and 90s, you know, all our favorites were baseball players. You know, we were so focused on that. And um, I think it starts at the top. we got to make it okay for players to celebrate, to have fun, to have showmanship. And, you know, that's one, one of our biggest goals here with the Bananas is we're trying to make the game more fun. We're trying to make it okay for guys to, you know, you know celebrate and bat flips and, you know, be okay doing things that can get the fans into it. You don't have to always act like you've done it before. And I think, uh, you know, that's been a challenge with baseball because of the traditional and the rules and the way it's supposed to be. So I'm encouraged by uh, getting kids to try it, but it's not just trying it, it's getting them to fall in love with it. And I think you need to make the game more fun, more enjoyable and faster. You know, right now the reality is games are taking too long. It's too much time. This is a fast world we're in. People can get immediate fixes pretty quickly and baseball hasn't really sped up. It's actually dramatically slowed down. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the, the speed of the game is certainly something that um, is a focus, at least at the, the major league level. And I, I, I honestly don't know if there is a fix. Have you seen some of the uh, some of the proposals to speed up games, whether it's pitch clocks, anything like that? Is it is there anything that can be done without just dramatically changing the game, like cutting off innings or anything along those lines? I'm struggled to see how these incremental changes, you know, by, you know, the intentional walk or a pitching change or, you know, doing little things that's going to make a big difference. The reality is baseball games are over three hours long and they're not getting faster. And you know, it, it's not just two minutes here, cutting two minutes here, cutting two minutes here. You know, it's proven. You know, you look at what the movie industry is doing. You know, what's soccer? You get over two hours, you know, people have lost their attention mm -hmm, span. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's where we are. So if for baseball to go from three hours and four minutes to two hours and 59 minutes or three hours and two minutes, I don't think that'll make a difference. You know, we need to make it where fans want more and they don't leave early. And if you look at ballparks, including our ballpark, which we're working on, you know, the dancing players and <laughs> the banana nanas and nonstop entertainment, fans still leave the game, you know, in the sixth, seventh, eighth inning. And they're leaving before. And I, I argue it's like people don't leave a great movie before the movie's over. They don't leave a great show, a comedy act, a theater, you know, a theater production in the middle of it. Yet baseball, every single baseball game, people are leaving in the middle of the game. So my challenge for Major League Baseball or any uh, baseball league is what can you do to make the game dramatically faster? I, I want people that want more, that say, wow, is that it? That was so fast. Mm -hmm and not leaving in the middle. And, you know, that's one of our big challenges that we're looking at and exploring and testing new things. But that's how you're going to get kids and everyone, you know, they can't just go to a game and get bored. If the game is boring to watch and it's boring to play, you're going to have trouble growing the numbers for kids all over the world. 
Yeah, so part of me looks at that challenge that you're that you're kind of laying out, the challenge of actually shortening the game and, and talking about how, you know, pitch clocks and that sort of thing only cut five minutes off. And if, you, you know, you cut it down from three hours and 15 minutes to three hours and 10, you're really not doing a whole lot. So is it more... Um, it, should the focus be more on helping people appreciate what they are actually seeing on the field and creating an overall experience at the game that is valuable and worth their time overall than maybe having such a focus on shortening the game? Yeah, there's two focus. You get, I mean, focus on the customer experience first. You know, obviously our company's named Fans First Entertainment. So we are so focused on everything else, you know, going on during the game. The breakdancing first base coach, you know, the nonstop promotions, the throwing out the t-shirts, the, you know, having the pep band going through the crowd. We try to have all that entertainment going on simultaneously during the game because we can't control right now the game, you know, right? It could, you know, a pitcher could walk four guys. It could be a long extended inning. You can't control that. Um, but I do think fundamentally we need to look at the actual game. Um, it, it's a challenge that I think it, it needs to be addressed because uh, while this, this, this article from the Wall Street Journal shows that casual play has increased, uh, attendance is still going down at the top area of Major League Baseball. Over 4% it went down last year. And, you know, the challenges are you're seeing there's only 18 minutes of action in an actual baseball game. I saw that stat recently. Mm -hmm. There's a ball put into play every three minutes and 45 seconds. So literally in 10 minutes, you could see two balls put in play. You know, it, we need to find a way to make it fundamentally faster. We can work on all the outside experience, but we need to work on the game. And, um, you know, that's, <laughs> again, that's a huge daunting challenge. Um, but, you know, kids should be outside having fun, playing sports. Uh, and I think uh, it's, it's not the responsibility of the kids or the parents to say, hey, you got to go out and play that. Right. We, as people that are putting on and, and running and operating these sports, we need to make it more fun, more enjoyable, more exciting. And so that's what I think all the operators of every sport, not just baseball, you know, the, the football, hockey, soccer, some of these other ones that may be uh, declining or not growing. How do you make it more fun, more entertaining for the kids to play? Right. I, I think that's a great point. But I, I wonder, um, you know, kind of as you mentioned, attendance going down at the top levels of Major League Baseball. Uh, true. But also, owners saw $10.3 billion worth of revenue in 2018, <laughs> a record revenue. So, uh, you know, it, it is a warning like what you just said, falling on deaf ears of owners because they're still lining their pockets with money at the end of the day, not really concerned about the state of baseball 50 years from now, the way that maybe you and I are? Years ago, Netflix was growing at an unprecedented level. They were knocking Blockbuster out of business. They were the number one DVD company in the world. They were sending millions and millions of DVDs. Their stock price was approaching $200. They were dominating the game. But they saw that's not the future of where our customers want to go. Hmm. And they decided to split the company and say, we are going to go and focus on streaming because that's where it's going. And what happened is their stock plummeted. <laughs> it went down, I mean, down into the 20s, 30s. It, it went down dramatically because the market wasn't ready. But they looked at where we're going. You know, the famous quote from Wayne Gretzky is, you know, I don't go where the puck is. I go to where the puck's going to be. And that's what I think Major League Baseball and all sports should look at. Where are our customers going to be? What, what do they want? And with Major League Baseball and these sports making more money than they ever made, they have no reason to change. But Netflix, when they were on top of the game, they cared more about their customers and the long-term vision than the short-term profits. And I think that needs to be the focus for everyone in sports or whatever business you're in. And go where the puck's going to be, not where it already is right now. And I'll tell you, people are never going to want things slower, longer, less convenient. They're always going to want things faster, more exciting, and more convenient. And if baseball or these other sports is, sports are going longer and they're not becoming more convenient, more exciting, they're in trouble. And I don't care how much money anyone's making at the current spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, when, it, when it comes to the current in-stadium sta in experience for fans, what's lacking? Are there things that teams could be doing better uh, that you've seen from your experience with the Bananas just uh, that Major League Baseball teams could be doing to engage their fans on a, on a better level that keeps them coming back? <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and again, I'm not criticizing. I, I don't want to be criticizing Major League Baseball. Sure. I mean, what what they've done to to grow and, and 
in the sense of, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing what they're doing. The ballparks are nicer. They're, I mean, they have done a lot of great things for the fan experience. What I look at is when I'm watching a, a game on TV, which is much less than I used to, um, I notice fans that are on their phones. I notice fans talking. I notice fans not necessarily watching the games. Mm-hmm. And so what, what I would challenge is how do you keep people engaged? What do you, how do you make it fun? You know, during our games, we'll have players come into the crowd and pass out roses to fans, to little girls in the crowd. We'll have players dance. We'll have them do conga lines through the crowd. I'll go through and do selfies. How do you get the crowd involved during the game when there's, you know, maybe some downtime, which there's a ton of downtime in baseball? So I would challenge uh, any baseball operator to think, what are they doing in between the action? A big, huge move for us was when we had our breakdancing first base coach that literally in between pitches is dancing. Mm-hmm. So fans are having something to watch. It's not just waiting for the next pitch or the ball to be put into play. So with our pep band going through the crowd, playing music, with our fans getting up and dancing, and we have sing-offs with 4,000 fans, how do you take your fans on a roller coaster where they're involved in the show? It's not just about the players putting on the show. It's getting your fans to be a part of the show and put it on themselves. And that's why we have so many fans dancing and singing and pieing each other and being involved in promotions from going on dates with players. You know, that's what it's about. So when they leave, they're like, wow, I can't believe what I was a part of, not what I sat down and watched. And I think that is a key that every operator needs to look at. Yeah, that's a it's a it's a great point. And to be honest, you know, when you look at an MLB team, uh, they've been investing in video boards and and things like that to maybe try to have. Uh, I don't I don't want to say a shortcut to that, but the, but to try to have some engaging content and try to have better replays and better uh, video content in the stadium and things like that. Are investments like that, uh, you know, moving towards the right direction? We don't need more screens, more video boards, more. We need more engagement. We know we need more. Um, you know, players getting involved in human connection. I'll tell you, we really try to, you know, eliminate the red tape and have the players greeting fans when they first come into the ballpark and signing autographs and passing on programs to getting in the crowd and taking selfies with fans. And like I said, passing out roses to little girls. You know, I think we need to eliminate the red tape and start involving the players and give people more access and we don't need more people looking at screens. Mm. I think what makes ballparks arenas great is that people get to escape. And you know, you think about those great moments where you lose track of time. It's where you're not just like sitting watching a show or watching your screen. It's actually engaging and being involved with other people. And I think that's what makes a sporting event so special that you may not know the, the 4,000 other people you're sitting with. But on special moments, all of a sudden you're dancing with everyone. You're singing with everyone. You're cheering with everyone. That's what makes a really cool experience that I think we need a lot more of. So um, I I challenge everyone that says, let's get a bigger screen in our ballpark. Mm. We don't even have a video board. (laughs) We have no technology at our stadium. We're in a 1926 ballpark, yet we've been so fortunate to sell out every game for the last two seasons because we focus on the actual human connection experience. And we create that with our players, our staff, and our fans. We're all in this together. Mm. And I think that's the key. You mentioned something earlier that I want to go back to because I think it's it's at least important to me in terms of my my experience with baseball, my journey of baseball. I I loved it as a kid. I played it. I wanted to be you know any shortstop that was worth anything in the major leagues. That's who I wanted to be. Whether it was Nomar Garcia Parra, Derek Jeter, or there was there were heroes to look up to. And and you mentioned that a little bit earlier. And you know I had binders full of baseball cards that my mom griped about all the time because I had you know five binders worth or whatever. And I you know memorized stats from the back of them and and you know I for whatever reason I still know that King Griffey Jr. hit 56 home runs back to back in 97 and 98 just because of baseball cards you know what I mean there was there was this base layer of knowledge that I had as a kid that I, I feel like is missing nowadays in just how we're able to interact with the sport kids have so much information at their fingertips but it very rarely seems that it's going to be baseball mm. Well, are they seeing them have fun? Hmm. You know, I mean, I remember you talk about King Griffey Jr. He turned his hat around backwards. You know, he had he was blowing big bubble gum. He was having fun. Right. And we saw that, you know, he looked like just a kid smiling. I mean, they called him the kid because <laughs> he was just a kid out there having fun and smiling. And Nomar Garcia Perrin is all his crazy movements with his batting right. gloves and Sammy Sosa with his home run jump that he would do. And everyone had their own signature moves and specialty. I think now baseball has got everyone to 
to going towards the middle. You know, this is how we do it. This is the major league way of doing it. No, it's, it's the uniqueness. It's the creativity. It's people having their own moves, their own strikeout moves, their own, their own home run celebrations. And I think that's what gets kids to, you know, really gravitate and be and like, wow, this is really special. And so I think that's a that's a great key that you bring into. I mean, I was a huge Nomar fan back then. I mean, you know, even like Cal Ripken used to have a different batting stance every couple of weeks. Right, and, right. And, and a guy, guy that probably no one knows here, but Phil Plantier, an old uh, a Red Sox player, only played for a couple of years. He would have that very low hitting stance. Mm-hmm. And there were so many unique hitting stances and the guys just had fun and you could see it. Um, I loved that when the World Baseball Classic launched a few years ago and they're representing their countries. You could see the energy and excitement and, and, and just, you know, let the kids have fun. Let the players have fun. And I think that's uh, something that um, Major League Baseball needs to really encourage. Because right now, if a guy celebrates a home run, the next guy might get hit in the ear. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's not this isn't the way it's supposed to be done. Well, you know what? Make it fun because I'll tell you, the fans get into that and then they'll start emulating. You'll have kids at the ballparks doing it. When I was 12 years old, I used to do Hideo Nomo windups in the middle of games. I literally would put my hands straight up in the air and twirl around and pitch like Hideo Nomo. Like, that's so cool. If you go to the ballparks now, the Little League fields, who are the kids emulating? Who are they acting like? I, I love Mike Trout, great ball player, but how do you emulate Mike Trout? Yeah, it, it, pretty impossible. I, exactly. So, you know, I, I think... Uh, we need to really embrace what makes each player different. And Major League Baseball needs to celebrate and say, you know what, be you, kid. Be you and get out and engage with the fans and have fun. It's okay to do videos of yourself, you know, in batting practice, celebrating and having fun. <laughs> Show more behind the scenes because all we're seeing is this like properly professional way of playing the game. Of course, kids aren't, you know, gravitating towards that or getting excited at. Needs to be fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember for a uh, for an entire season of coach pitch when we were kids, my little brother decided to have um d- decided to adopt Mickey Tettleton's batting stance. You remember Mickey uh, Tettleton who just kind of yes. laid the bat on his open palm, uh, basically mm. parallel to the ground up until the the pitcher started his windup. One of the more hilarious batting stances I ever saw. But man, my brother adopted that for and and stuck with it for a full uh, coach pitch season when we were probably seven or eight. And uh, I admire his his uh, dedication to sticking with it. But you're totally right. We spent hours in the backyard because we had guys to emulate. I wanted to uh, to memorize all of Nomar Garcia Parra's ticks and uh, and pre uh, pre hitting uh, you know uh, habits and that sort of thing. And then we tried to emulate King Griffey Jr.'s batting stance and you know all of that kind of stuff in the backyard. That's just that's just not there anymore. Uh, it feels like with kids, and and you got guys like uh, Yasiel Puig, who kind of has the individualism of him, kind of squelched out of him by the uh, the baseball elite, so to speak. Same thing, him and Bryce Harper. You know, it's very interesting, and I, I just went to my first ever WWE wrestling event, <laughs> and I am not a wrestling fan, right? but I, I went for research and development. Because, you know, what wrestling does so well is it builds the characters up. They have their special music. They have their entrances. They have their moves. They have their sayings. They're calling responses. I was sitting with thousands of wrestling fans that literally as soon as the first tone of their entrance song comes on, the place erupts. And then they come down with their special walk. And then all of a sudden they start doing call and responses saying, what's up? And the whole crowd goes, what's up? And I'm like, this is amazing. And so when we're thinking about that, I'm sitting there with our president and our director of operations, like how can we get our players to have the same thing? When they're coming to the plate, they're doing a call and response with the crowd. They have their own special strut, like the Ric Flair strut. Right. Wrestling has perfected the entertainment experience. And there's no reason why sports can't utilize some of those ideas and bring it into a really competitive environment. Because I'll tell you, there's a reason why I'm sitting next to, at that wrestling event, a seven-year-old kid with a mask on, yelling at the top of his lungs, (laughs) and then a 45-year-old grown man wearing a similar mask, yelling on the top of his lungs. I'm like, where am I? That's not happening in baseball. I think we can learn a lot from wrestling and from other entertainment industries out there. Does baseball need to um, kind of lean more into the the safety of the game as compared to maybe other sports that whose participation might also be down around the country? Is uh, is the concussion issue a big enough deal in football that baseball needs to play up the fact that it's a safer game to play? I don't think you should ever really focus on competitors or the negative of what other people aren't doing. Hmm. Just create the best possible experience you can for your fans, for the players, for everyone that's a part of it. And so 
I, I think, yes, you know, you look at politicians, what do they do? They focus on all the negatives of their uh, opponent. You know, I don't think baseball needs to attack football or attack anything else. I think they get a, what is the best experience possible hmm. for their fans, players, and everyone a part of it. And so uh, I, I wouldn't go that route. Okay. I would just say, obviously, you got to look at how do you make the game faster, exciting, more fun, and, uh, and involve the fans in the experience. And I think when you put all that together, uh, the numbers will take care of itself. So tomorrow... Rob Manfred steps down as commissioner of Major League Baseball. They say, Jesse Cole, we want you. Uh, what's the first thing you do to improve that customer experience, that that game experience for everyone that attends a game? What's the first thing you do uh, league-wide, across the league, to kind of create uh, that idea or that um, to, to create that kind of emotion amongst uh, teams to understand that this is what we need to do to engage fans better? What's the first thing you do? <laughs> I'd probably get thrown out as commissioner in a few hours. Uh, the, the appropriate, the, the the smart answer would be to to talk to all the players, to talk to the owners, and find out what's prohibiting them from um, you know having more fun on the field, from engaging more with fans. Um, you know, we have our players come out of the crowd every single night. You know, a lot of the nights, and and you know, introduce them in unique ways. Why aren't the players involved in the crowd? So I, you know, again, my first thing I would do. Uh, <laughs> is I would have to talk to everyone just to get some input, but I would. Uh, <laughs> you're at I, obviously this is a very tough question for me because <laughs> what, 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 there's a lot of things that I would do, and I appreciate you asking that. But um, <laughs> I would want to make the games shorter, more exciting, and also uh, more showmanship. So I would I would challenge. Hey, let's do some exhibition games uh, in the winter or the spring, where the game, the rules are a little different. It's faster, and let's encourage all the showmanship, all the celebration, and let's see what happens and see how the fans react to that. Would you take the game down to six or seven innings? <laughs> um, I would focus on how do you get the games under two hours. Okay. So whether that's decreasing the innings or changing up a little bit of the rules, how do you make the games less than two hours? I think what we've seen at the movie theaters, what we've seen with soccer, that is a really good benchmark. When you get over that two-hour time frame, we're in trouble. So however we can make the games complete in under two hours, I would be open to the hmm. ideas. I'm a big sports fan in general, and so um, and soccer is kind of one of the avenues that that I have as kind of an outlet. And I, I do think it's a it's a wonderful aspect of that particular game that when you sit down for a game, um, you know that you're in for a two hour commitment and not more. And I think that that is uh, an underrated aspect to its popularity around the world. Just that you know what you're getting when you sit down. You might not be thrilled with the action, but you know what amount of time you're about to commit to it, and then you're done. And I think that that's that's, nice. that's such a great that's such a great point because expectations yeah are everything now you know I was on the other day on a plane and literally uh, the the TV stopped working on the person seat behind me and they started complaining you know this plane's not this this TV's not working I want a refund I want a refund I was like we're in a plane up above on the sky <laughs> literally and you're going to watch TV five six seven years ago you would have never even imagined that but our expectations are raised so so high right now. So it's like we have to be able to look at, you know, what what can we do to, you know, uh, I don't want to say temper the expectations, but when you go into a, a ballpark, no, this is what you're going to expect. In a baseball game, I don't know when it's going to be over. Right. We get calls all the time, hey, when's the fireworks show after the game? Well, when's that? We don't know. <laughs> it, could be, it could be 10, it could be 10.30, it could be 11, it could be 9.30. If you know what you're getting into, then you can prepare yourself. And then you get excited. You can see when the end's happening. In a baseball game, you can be in the seventh inning, but it might take an hour and a half to get to the ninth inning. Right, right. So I, I think that's that's a huge point. And if people come to a game at 7 o'clock to know by 9 o'clock I'm out, they will stay in those 10, 15 minutes. Oh, we're, we're almost done. But at 9 o'clock, we might have an hour and a half. Yeah. And I think that's a huge, huge point. And I think that's a key thing to discuss in, in sports is how do you, you know, make sure that you um, adjust the expectations of your customers and have them prepared to know what to expect. I think so too. I think uh, I'm excited to see what kind of happens in the future with with baseball. Obviously, I'm a, I love the game, a huge fan of the game, and I know you are too. So, Jesse Cole, thank you so much for joining me here for the podcast today. I could do this all day and just talk baseball, but uh, you're a busy guy. You got to get back to things, and uh, and so do I. So, we'll do it again soon. That's no, a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks again to Jesse for joining the podcast today. I really appreciate his vision when it comes to this sort of thing and really looking in and saying, okay, what do fans want? Fans want entertainment. Kids want players they can look up to. Uh, How can we provide that? And how can we continue to pass on this great game that we all love so much? And I think that that holds ramifications, not just for baseball, but for anybody across any sport that at some point you have to consider, okay, what is it that fans love about this sport and how can we give them more of that? And how can we give them great experiences at our stadiums? I think that's going to be a conversation that at a certain point, uh, football is probably going to need to have because as television gets better, as more and more people decide to not spend the money to go to the stadium, but to watch on the gigantic televisions that they bought themselves, you're going to have to consider how exactly teams should get fans into football stadiums. So it's something that I think is going to come for every sport at some point and why Watching how Major League Baseball deals with it and how people like Jesse Cole deals with it, I think it will be very informative and really inform the strategies for football, basketball, other sports down the road. All right, coming up next is my conversation with Alec Weber, and he's the business development manager at Blinkfire Analytics. We're going to talk about the success of the jersey patch that NBA teams had this season that uh, advertised, basically, for a particular brand. Um, How was it so successful? Give us some of the numbers. We're going to talk about that, but also just how to best utilize social media when it comes to uh, displaying your brand, displaying your sports team. So uh, something that baseball is lagging behind a little bit in when it comes to uh, how you look at basketball and some of the other sports in the United States. So how can baseball better position itself in this market of social media, especially in this day and age where social media just drives so much of the conversation nowadays, especially for younger people. So definitely something for baseball to consider. So we're going to talk about that coming up next on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. All right, joining me now on the podcast is Alec Weber. He is the business development manager at Blinkfire Analytics. He's making his second appearance here on the Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Alec, thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. Thanks for having me again, Tyler. Appreciate it. Anytime. Absolutely. So last time we kind of dove into the basics of what Blinkfire does and kind of explained the way that it's changing the game for sports organizations and teams um, and, and how they use social media. But give us a brief explainer again, just to refresh everyone. Uh, what does Blinkfire do and how is it really revolutionizing the game when it comes to social media content in sports? Yeah. So Blinkfire is a social analytics company that tracks brand exposure and social content. We're working with teams, leagues, media agencies, uh, brands to track their brand exposure from a team and league standpoint. They want to see how much value they're driving for their brand partners on social. Because as you know, you know, the more value you can show that you're driving for your brand partners, the more value or the more amount of money you can charge for these partnerships. Right. And especially a lot of their big marquee assets like the Jersey patch, which we're going to get into. And I'm excited to talk about the bulk of the value for some of these assets comes from social. And with the rise of different popular social media accounts like House of Highlights, Bleacher Report, et cetera, there is so much extra additional value coming from that that they can now capture and quantify and share with their brand partners, which ultimately means their corporate partnerships teams are bringing in more money. Absolutely. And you mentioned the uh, the NBA jersey patch, and that's something we actually talked about on our on our first episode, the first time you and I spoke. Uh, but now we're kind of further towards the end of the season for the NBA, and I want to look back a little bit um, and, and just ask about the effectiveness of it. How do NBA teams uh, perceive how well this experiment has gone, and what have been the results of it? So I think the NBA, the jersey patch, has been an incredibly successful test period trial when the nba initially launched this a couple a couple years ago they projected about 100 million dollars coming in from the patch and with a recent sbj article talking about having some team quotes and stuff like that they mentioned they brought in over 150 million and that's with 29 of the 30 teams having a patch partner i I suspect the the thunder will have a patch partner pretty soon especially when we had the likes of paul george and russell westbrook but Overall, I would say it's been a resounding success. Um, It's something that I think when the NBA initially launched this, they wanted to kind of test the waters. I think they did a great job of initially releasing it, letting fans get accustomed to it um, with just only having the jerseys available at the team stores to see how they would want it. And what's been fascinating, having been, you know, being a big NBA fan and going, going to quite a few games, 
that fans actually are willing not only to pay more to have the authentic jerseys with the patch because they ultimately want to wear what the, the players have. But a lot of fans actually kind of like the creative of the patch logo for a lot of these teams is it kind of goes really well with the jerseys. And I've even been at games where I've seen fans bring in their old jer jerseys to get the the patch partner like pressed onto the jersey. There's actually wow. been like stations where that's happened. Uh, the, when we were out in Salt Lake City last spring, um, I saw like a line of about 10, 12 people lined up to do that. So I think the fans don't care. They ultimately want what the players are wearing. So from that perspective, I don't think there's any issues. I think we're going to see this continue beyond next season after the three-year trial is over. And with a couple other things that are factoring into the revenue, I think you're going to see that number skyrocket. Right now we're averaging about $5 million per deal. I think it, it would, wouldn't be too lofty to say they're going to get close to $10 million, uh, as an average. Absolutely. And I, so one of the things that I uh, appreciate about Blink Fire is that I, I follow you guys on social media and a lot of what you post on there is um, explainers for how teams can do a better job of making sure that the logos on their jerseys and their brand partners are more visible in their social content. So uh, showing examples of a, of a good social media picture that includes, you know, the, the patch on the jersey uh, when, when you post a picture of LeBron, if you're the Lakers or something along those lines. Um, I, I think those are really helpful because it helps me kind of understand a little bit more about how teams can best employ this strategy. So have you seen teams really... Uh, uh, shifting the way they use uh, their social media accounts and shifting maybe the content that they uh, they post to make sure that their brand partners are getting uh, as much value as possible? Yeah, there's definitely been uh, a lot of different insights to get into that. And quickly, just to take a step back, when the, the patch was initially launched, a lot of concerns that I had along with uh, several of my colleagues in the industry is the patch was just a very small it's a small patch. It's two and a half inches by two and a half inches. Mm -hmm. So from a visibility standpoint on broadcast, the players moving up and down, given the pace of the NBA game on a broadcast perspective, it, just the numbers aren't going to be great. And for what the teams initially were asking for, we found this asset to be uh, maybe a little overpriced, or maybe there might be some better opportunities to look at. And a lot of the reason for that is your exposure depending a lot on having the right camera angles. Hey, when a guy's shooting a free throw, do they do a close-up shot instead of doing a faraway shot of hmm. or showing the fans? Or when he's on the bench, do they do a good close-up shot to get the patch? There's certain opportunities during the broadcast that really capture the patch, but you're you're at the mercy of your local RSN or the national broadcast to make sure they're getting those shots. And then, you know, how do they play that relationship? Are they asking you for money? Do you have to kind of grease those wheels. So those were the lot of kind of pause for concern we have with the asset. But now that we're in year two, what's been fascinating about it is the bulk of the value for the asset comes from social media. Right, and what's so right. unique and what makes the asset so unique and so great in my opinion for the teams is you can control what you post. And by having a strategic mindset with the content that you're posting, um, you can greatly control and increase the value that you're putting out there for your patch partner. Meaning, hey, we have a couple good action shots. One um, has a patch clearly present. A couple, you know, the guy's arm is in front of it or he's holding the ball right in front of the patch. Let's not use that one. Or when we announce the signing of a new uh, of the player, let's post a picture of him holding the front and the back of his jersey to social so they clearly see the patch partner. There's so many different applications like that that teams have gotten very clever with. And we've seen it on our side. Some teams have gone from 3 to 10x the, uh, the value they've driven from their owned and operated channels uh, year over year. And a big thing is a lot of these teams can't necessarily control what media companies post. But a lot of times they tend to use the similar type of content or videos. So in a way, you can actually kind of impact indirectly impact the value that's being driven from media companies for your patch partner. For example, um, some of the partners that we work, work with, our team partners, they've talked to their broadcast crew about, hey, when you're doing a um, post-game interview, let's make sure we hold the microphone on the opposite side of the patch or make sure it's not direct holding it directly from the patch so that way when we post that post game interview and say that goes viral and espn posted or house of highlights or whoever the patch is clearly present because in year one for every like good opportunity that happens where the patch was present during these interviews there was half a dozen a dozen times where 
the person, it wasn't, you know, no fault of their own, nothing malicious behind it, but they were holding the microphone directly in front of the patch and it covered up the, the, the patch during the entire interview. So there was just a lot of lost opportunity that teams over the years have been able to kind of step back, review what happened in year one, and then apply those best practices and insights for year two. And you're seeing a big difference in the value that's being driven. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, it makes a lot of sense that teams would get better at it kind of over time and are kind of learning some of these lessons and maximizing that value. Um, you mentioned as part of that answer, the size of the patch, just that it's it's two by two, it's relatively small. I think a lot of the concern and a lot of the uh, objections that uh, come from some people about introducing sponsors onto jerseys is that they're concerned that eventually the jersey is going to look like a NASCAR you know, vehicle or whatever, where it's completely plastered with a bunch of different sponsors and different sizes and all of that sort of thing. And it doesn't look uniform. It just kind of looks like a big... Uh, you know, a big jumbled mess, I suppose, of logos. I think that is, uh, people think that there's a slippery slope type thing that will happen here. Do you see the NBA going a step further or, or continuing down this road? Or do you think that uh, the two by two patch is kind of as far as they'll go into the uh, the world of jersey sponsorships? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think we'll quite get to the extent that NASCAR has it or it's kind of an advertising billboard where there's a zillion logos on it. Um, I think European soccer kind of toes the line pretty well where fans don't even seem to mind that, you know, their main kit sponsor is the heart across the chest or the crest of the kit. Um, You know, more people, when you see Real Madrid, you think of Emirates than you actually see like the Real Madrid crest or their patch on the, the kit. So that there's still a long way to go from going from a Jersey patch to having the brand partners logo directly across the the Jersey. Um, That's going to be probably 10, 20 years down the line. It depends um, ultimately if the owners and the NBA want to bring in that type of revenue, I think they will have to have um, a Jersey that kind of is comparable to what we are seeing over overseas. And it's something that the NBA has been experimenting with in the G league and WNBA where they have, both their league partner and the team partner um, have their logos clearly across the chest um, on top and below the numbers. So it's something they've been been testing out. I don't think we'll ever get to a point where you see it in NASCAR, but I do think just given the the revenue opportunity, um, you know, it's a big reason when you see these European clubs getting anywhere from like 30, 40, sometimes like $70 million annually for the kit sponsor, you know, that's a lot of money to, to, to pass on. And if that means having, you know, your brand partner across the chest and big lettering, and as long as it's done in a creative, tasteful way, I think that's something that will be, that has to be at least considered. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're 100% right. And when I think about, you know, uh, the Manchester United jersey these days, you know, there's a big Chevy logo on it. And so it's something that I think people are aware of and American brands are even aware of um, as Manchester United is one of the most visible and recognizable team names and brands around the world. And all of a sudden uh, you've got Chevy logos on jerseys being worn in, you know, Thailand or, or whatever. I, I think people see the value in that. And um, you mentioned uh, earlier just about the amount of money they receive. It would surprise me if owners in other sports didn't recognize that as well and say, look, the NBA is doing this effectively. Is there a way we can hop in on this? Do you think that other sports in the United States specifically will begin to um, maybe look at this strategy and and adopt it on some level? So it's not something that it's something that the other leagues have already been secretly doing for for many years they just haven't necessarily implemented with their actual game jerseys so what i mean by that the nhl and uh, nfl have been doing it for many years with the practice jersey like their training camp jersey or when the players are skating for for pre uh pre um before the game and they're on the ice they have a practice jersey on it so they've already been doing it and testing it and something that teams have been able to sell I think it's more so there, when does it happen where they, they move it to the actual game jerseys? And I think with the NBA being kind of on the forefront initiative with that and seeing the amount of dollars that they, they've been able to bring in, I would it would be hard-pressed not to see other t- leagues follow suit. Obviously, the MLS has already been doing it with their kids' sponsorship. Now they're adding the sleeve sponsor, which you know a lot of reports have said that can be anywhere from a half a million to a million dollar opportunity for the team, depending on which club. So as these other leagues look at these opportunities, there's a lot of revenue opportunities that I think just the money is too great for them to pass up on. And then now you just recently saw 
um, on Monday with the announcement with the Japan series and baseball with the athletics that they partnered with MGM resorts and they're going to have their patch on the sleeve. And I think that's something that MLB has looked at in the past and kind of experimented with, but I think just given how some of the other leagues have treated this type of asset that it's probably going to be here to stay in the near future. It's just going to be a matter of which which league is the next domino to fall that says, hey, we're committed to doing this on our Game 1 jerseys. Yeah, it's interesting that Major League Baseball is kind of experimenting with it, kind of dipping their toes into it with this Japan series, but not fully committing to it uh, here in the United States. Uh, that's That's... Interesting, I suppose. And I wonder kind of what's behind that overall strategy, if it's just to kind of test the waters and see how it works, or if they think that the market in Japan is just more accustomed to to ads and that sort of thing when it comes to jerseys and whatnot. Yeah, and you think of, like, when you go to a baseball game, I mean, having grown up in St. Louis and now living in Chicago, um, and I've been to quite a few different ballparks, there's signage all over um, these these stadiums. I mean, some of the, it's like a billboard. I mean, Yankee Stadium, there's a, a... hundred different uh, ad boards and brand logos throughout. So it kind of always surprised me how MLB is kind of taking the the stance of um, we do this in Japan. I mean, it's actually kind of surprising when I did some research, they actually started, they initially did it in 2000 between wow. the Cubs and the Mets. Um, it was the first sleeve patch they did with the Japan series and something they've done every few years when the teams have gone over to Japan, but they've never implement, implemented that during their, the regular season, during the game-worn jerseys. And I've always kind of, I don't know if it's just they didn't want to be the first league or they wanted to see how it worked with other leagues first to see, like, the monetary value they could bring in. But just seeing what, you know, what the MLS is looking to bring in from it, what the NBA is bringing in, um, about $5 million annually, and I expect that number to skyrocket to probably 10 as an average after the three-year trial period is over. I just think the money is too great for baseball and these other leagues not to follow suit. Yeah, it just makes too much sense. Um, it, you know, when when we talk about the NBA, we're talking about a league that is, um, I would say, maybe on the forefront of how to use social media to gain um, to gain fans, to get viewers' eyeballs, just in a new way and that sort of thing. And baseball is is not quite on that same level with the NBA. But are they working towards that? And what are some best practices for Major League Baseball teams so that they can begin to maybe utilize social media content in a better way that benefits their brands but also gets the, gets the game in front of the eyes of younger people that are on social media? Yeah, I think a big thing for them, and obviously give the NBA credit, is they had a, a kind of an opposite laissez-faire approach to how their content was shared on social. Meaning me, you, um, your cousin, whoever could share whatever content we wanted about the NBA on our social without any restrictions or limitations. Whereas the other leagues were a little bit more restrictive about, hey, we own this content, this has to come from our channels. Which basically limited or had a funnel effect where you only had to go to these specific accounts to see the content, but that also meant that these accounts controlled what you consume. Whereas in the NBA, if I wanted to say my favorite player was Derrick Rose, I could make a zillion different highlight clips and post content about Derrick Rose or a specific player. So how that kind of, that really helped the value of the Jersey patch and that a lot of the, the different content that's being shared, a lot of the, the rise of these popular social accounts like House of Highlights and Bleacher Report that post heavy NBA related content, it has greatly amplified the value of the patch. Mm-hmm. So they've really kind of benefited from that aspect. And I think you've started to see over the years, the NFL and the, uh, the MLB um, kind of follow suit where they allow some of these other accounts to have these digital and social rights where they can post more highlights or content around um, their their league. So I think that's a big, big step in the right direction. Um, I think something we were kind of talking about before the call, I think there's a lot of parallels with baseball uh, if they do move forward with the sleeve patch for the duration of the season with what MLS clubs are going to be doing with the, the sleeve patch starting in 2020 and what European soccer clubs are doing. We work with a bunch of the global giants like Manchester City, uh, um, Real Madrid, Juventus, who even shared with us when they have player transfer announcements during their press conference that they specifically told tell their players, hey, when you 
hold up your jersey, you need to hold up the kit in a specific way. So that way the sleeve sponsor is clearly shown during the picture. Wow. And we actually share this with some of our MLS club partners as they're starting to prepare for next season that, yeah, the, the guy might look a little bit awkward holding it or they'll have a team executive hold one side while the player holds the other side. And then we point out like, look how he's strategically holding the kit. So that way the sleeve partner is, you know, getting the exposure. And for them, it's a big deal because they have, you know, when they post something, they get 500 million or they get uh, half a million likes. So the, mm -hmm. the value that's being driven from one post is massive. So they have all these different little insights that I think, I mean, the asset's going to be very similar to baseball. So if teams were to follow it, I would highly encourage them to, to go on Instagram and start following some of the, the, the major global clubs like Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juventus, Manchester City, et cetera, because they're the best at what they're doing and making sure they squeeze every last uh, value and exposure out of, your, out of uh, the sleeve asset. You mentioned earlier that uh, NBA teams and, and NHL teams have, you know, the warm-up jerseys and uh, and maybe training camp or or practice jerseys that have logos on them. Um, but Major League Baseball, you, you didn't mention, and one of the things that one of the places and areas where I think uh, teams utilize their social media the most is kind of during batting practice and that sort of thing when players are kind of just standing around and maybe there's a player in the cage taking some swings and whatnot, but. It feels like that would be a great opportunity for Major League Baseball just to start to test the waters and, and kind of dip their toes in the same way that other leagues have been doing for years now. Uh, is that an area that you think could be exploited? So regarding like practice jerseys or spring, um, like spring training, I know they've been doing that a lot. Mm -hmm. A lot of from what I follow from baseball teams, they don't tend not to post as much content from um, like batting practice or warmups. Um, that would think that would be something that MLB clubs would have to kind of their digital partners be more of a focus and emphasis. It's not necessarily like something like all this content already exists. These teams put out there that, Hey, if we were a little bit more strategic about it, we could just um, really make more value for the patch partner in that way. Yeah. I think overall, I think they should just jump into it with the game worn jerseys. Um, they already post so much content throughout the game mm -hmm. that there's so many good shots of the players in the dugout or um, standing in the outfield that a good close-up shot or their pitcher getting ready to throw the pitch, that if they just had a good close-up shot with uh, from the right angle, the patch would just crush it for them. So I think that's kind of the avenue I would be more focused in on with them rather than, I mean, as, as we've both been talking about through the podcast, they've been testing the, the sleeve patch for a while with the Japan series. Um, I don't, like, I'm not sure what more data they need to look at, but I think I would just jump right in with the game-worn jerseys rather than kind of testing it with, like, um, you know, their batting warm-up jerseys or um, yeah. that type of stuff. Yeah, and you raise a good point about just baseball, you are stationary more often and for longer periods of time than in just about any other sport that we're going to discuss, you know, when it comes to, you know, American sports. So that does seem to kind of lend itself to to that idea that you can get good shots of jersey patch sponsors um, just right there easily uh, while players are in the field and that sort of thing. So that, that seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah, I would 100% agree. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, social media is obviously not going anywhere, and neither are sports, and I'm looking forward to continuing to discuss and just kind of dive into the intersection of these two uh, behemoths in our society today. So, Alec Weber, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast, and uh, we'll have to do it again soon. Yeah, for sure. Thanks again, Tyler, for having me. Anytime you want to talk the jersey patch or sleeve patch, more than happy to. I spend way too much time looking at these different social posts and talking about this with the team, so always happy to have a conversation because um, I nerd out and geek out about this type of stuff. <laughs> well, uh, I spend way too much time on Twitter as it is. Uh, don't tell my boss, but yeah, definitely way too much time on social media. So I understand as well. Alec, have a good day, man. And we'll, we'll, we'll do it again soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Tyler. Right, thank you to Alex Weber for uh, joining us from Blinkfire Analytics. I always appreciate his insight. Just really, really knowledgeable at that intersection of sports and social media that we're seeing so much of these days. All right, coming up next is our Market Scale correspondent, Sean Heath, taking a look at what teams are doing across Major League Baseball to improve their stadiums and improve their stadium-going experience. He's going to take a deep dive into that and talk about are they video boards, are they improved concession stand uh, experiences, what else could there be for Major League Baseball 
baseball to improve the fan experience there at the games. So that is coming up next here on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Welcome to Market Scale Sports and Entertainment. I'm your host, Sean Heath. Well, spring training for Major League Baseball is officially here. And just off in the distance, you can see opening day. Ah, the opportunity to hop into a self-driven Uber hover car to a climate-controlled arena as I walk through the gate and have the retinal scanner confirm that I have a ticket to the game, being escorted to my seat and having an opportunity to order a beer for my entire row by simply touching the beer icon on my cell phone. And then in the third inning, having the opportunity to watch an AR replay on my screen from 14 different angles of that close play at third base. Ah, good times, good times, just like it never used to be. You can laugh all you want about that description. Only one thing in that previous sentence is not actually under active development right now. By major league baseball teams. Of the four major professional sports in North America, baseball seems to be the one that is the most resistant to technological change and the most in danger of having the emotional center of the game altered drastically for its fans due to the oncoming technical onslaught. Now, of course, there are no such things as non-profit professional sports teams. The danger that these franchises run into when bringing in all of the new technology is that the technology they're bringing in to help increase enjoyment of the environment or of the event for the fans could just be something that turns the fans off from the experience altogether. Now, I'm not going to go into grumpy old man mode right now. I'm one of the most technologically interested fans of any sport ever. But there is a fine line that these sports franchises need to tiptoe. And the first line I think they need to be really conscious of is from the player side. Of course, climate-controlled environments are excellent for fans, not necessarily the best for the athletes especially when you consider artificial turf. There have been countless studies done on the potential injuries that can come from artificial turf, and there are incredible advancements being made in the technology every day. Let's also take into account the actual physical experience of fans when they come to the ballpark. Now, of course, parking is always a concern, and it's always an extreme hassle. A baseball game in August in Arlington, Texas, is not the most enjoyable sports experience I've ever been through. 104 degrees in the shade is not extremely conducive to sitting still in a pile of your own sweat while trying to desperately get the beer guy to come by your row one more time so that you do not pass out from dehydration or heat exhaustion. However, some of these technical advances are really interesting. The ability to stat track live stats on your phone through a team-supported app, the ability to place an order for concessions without having to go wait in line, even the rumored technology of being able to be directed to the least crowded bathroom. To me, that in and of itself is well worth the price of admission. Something else that will be taking place and changing environmentally will be the visuals that are provided around the ballpark. Of course, the larger LED screens or LCD screens as they begin to proliferate through Major League Baseball will really change the sensory input that fans get at the traditionally pastoral game. I don't think we'll see the days where you have the cardboard outline of a bull in center field giving a guy stakes for a year when he hits a home run off of it. However, we just might see a digital reenactment of a close play at the plate or of an incredible catch out in the outfield, and we might see that rendered in almost real time on every screen, 360 degrees. I don't know that baseball will always be the same after these technological advances, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it won't be better. I'm Sean Heath, and this has been a Spotlight on Sports and Entertainment. Thank you 
to Sean for taking that look at MLB stadiums and what's going on here in the offseason as we prepare for the 2019 Major League Baseball season. What upgrades are going on there at the stadiums? I appreciated that deep dive and that look into that topic. Thank you to both of my other guests today, Alec Weber and Jesse Cole, for joining us on the show. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. But if you need more sports and entertainment content, don't worry, we have you covered here at MarketScale. Go to MarketScale.com, click on Industries up at the top of the page, and scroll down all the way to sports and entertainment. There you'll be able to find more uh, podcasts, more written articles, video content as well. We've got a lot of great stuff coming out right now. We have a Dallas Stars video that just dropped that is really, really awesome. You need to go watch it. It's kind of a a behind-the-scenes of their game day entertainment staff, and uh, they do an amazing job, put on an awesome show. It's totally worth going and checking out. So if you haven't seen that yet, head over to MarketScale.com and find that Dallas Stars video. As always, we'll be back soon with another episode of the MarketScale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.